Welcome to Leading Between the Lines, a podcast series by Alternique Inspired Growth, with me, Peter Thorpe, as your host. This series is designed to look at how leaders of all shapes, sizes and backgrounds are developing their personal leadership skills and the way they lead their teams to function more effectively in this new world. Our guest today was born in Nairobi and came to London when she was 13, where she currently lives. Her work revolves around inclusion and diversity, and she's made some amazing progress in these areas. So to talk to us today about the challenges, the frustrations and the successes of her work, it's a pleasure to welcome Mira Rikandalia, co-founder of BYP. Welcome, Mira. Thank you so much, Peter. It's really, really lovely being here. Um, I'm really grateful that you invited me onto this podcast. Well, you're, you're very welcome. We'll come back to BYP, what it stands for and what it does. First, though, take us back to the time you came to the UK from Nairobi in 2006. What brought you here and the differences you noticed compared to Kenya? Yeah, sure. Um, I came here in 2006 when I was 13, as you mentioned, um, and it really wasn't my decision. So at the time, my two older sisters were studying um, at university in the UK um, and they didn't want to come back. So my parents thought, why don't we all just go to London and live together? Honestly, one of the things I always say um, as soon as I stepped into my North London, extremely diverse school was I actually felt like I was at home. So my, um, my school in London, just to kind of give you an idea, like I walked into class for the first time and there were about 30 different nationalities just in my, in my form group, countries I'd never, ever heard of. Um, and funnily, when I was in Kenya, I went to quite a British school. So it was very English. Um, so my experience in London, my first experience in London was almost, you know, where are all the white people? Um, but um, yeah, so that was when I came in, I was 13 years old, very impressionable. Um, and um, the, the, the difference I noticed straight away was um, one, obviously, the, the multiculturalism. Nairobi is also quite diverse, but just not to that extent. Um, and um, the sense of humor that British people have, like I absolutely just um, almost came in and I'm naturally very sarcastic as a person. Um, and I don't think that that flies very well outside of the UK. I'm not sure where I got it from, um, but I was considered quite funny. So I think I really fit in when I, when I first came into to, to England. So it almost felt very much like home straight away. You did most of your secondary education then in the UK. Where did you go on leaving school? Um, so I, um, I did. So I did my GCSEs and my A-levels in, in the UK. Um, and then as soon as I left school, I went to university in Cardiff. Um, and I did three years in Cardiff and then pretty much straight away after that, um, I, I started working. So that's kind of what my, my background is. So we're talking to you today primarily because of your work in inclusion and diversity. When did you know that this was really important to you? I find that like a really interesting question because um, the truth is, is like it's, it's always been something that's been part of my activism in one way or another. So. Since I was quite young, since I was since I since I've been in school, I was quite involved in like local politics and government, um, whether it was shadowing MPs or you know joining debates and discussions, um, working for the council a bit here and there. Um, and then when I went to university, um, I started leading an organisation that was a social enterprise focusing on like giving international students opportunities in in the UK, um, and then sent, and, and vice versa. So. I think I didn't really know the word diversity and inclusion, but being an Asian woman, um, quite small actually, and see, seeing 
um, you know, for example, in school, like 40% of my school was black, um, but then I didn't see that at university. And then I definitely didn't see that in the workplace. It was always in the back of my mind where I was like, there are a group of people that aren't being included where the money is, where industry is. So it was around 2015 where I, 2014, 2015, I first left university um, and I got really interested in like understanding like race, ethnicity in the UK, feminism. And I was reading a lot of books around it, specifically around, you know, corporate side of things. Um, and I wrote a dissertation at university around female inclusion in the workplace as well. Um, so that was like, it was just in the back of my mind and hit back 2016, um, an old colleague of mine reached out to me saying he's launching, he's running a company focused on gender diversity and running events to, to help tech companies attract more female talent. Um, and he wanted me to join as a first employee. I kind of left everything I was doing and I was like, this sounds really up my street. So um, that was my first time where I really began to articulate, you know, what the problem is, why, why there isn't that lack of, why there's a lack of diversity in, in, in technology, specifically when it comes to gender. Um, and I did a lot of reading around race, you know, Akala, for example, was, it was a big influence. I read books on him. I read books like why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Um, and I just started building a bigger picture as to like what the problems were. Um, and it just became a real point of passion for me. Um, and the best thing was I could channel that into my work. So I was able to like, you know, speak to companies on a daily basis. I speak to C CEOs, C-level, heads of HR, heads of DNI, trying to understand like what, what, is, what is the gap? Um, and it just built this like really clear picture for me that actually gender was just scratching the surface. But essentially, my, 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 my starting point was my own personal interests, my activism, and then finally getting the opportunity to work in the space. So how were the conversations at home then? Um, at that time, when you were doing your A-levels and then you went to, to university at Cardiff and you were really getting into this, were your yeah. parents supportive or...? or... <laughs> Not, not really. How is that going on? Um, so it's a bit, so it's a two-way thing. I've always kind of been seen as like the black sheep of, of my family um, in, in some respects. So, um, you know, for example, I used to confront my own family for their own misogyny or their own racism, because as much as I'm from a minority background, um, there's a, a huge amount of racism from, you know, Indian families towards um, black towards black people and Muslim people. So I used to kind of, I'm not saying that they were outwardly racist, but I used to, you know, pick up on things and I used to really confront that on the dinner table. Um, if I, if I started noticing misogyny, like misogyny or sexism, things like that, like I, I would always bring it up. Um, so I've always been known to be that kind of person who stirs things. And, I, and I've noticed a difference. Like I always kind of tell people that it's really important to talk to your parents, to talk to older people in your family and to call them out. Um, so in that respect, I think my family were a bit like, ugh, you know, a bit frustrated with me from time to time. Um, but the other side of that was I was always very ambitious. I was always focused. I was always doing a lot of work. I got a, I mean, I was financially independent the earliest from all my siblings. Um, so there wasn't really much that they could say because I was I was doing well for myself. So they were supportive. They didn't really understand what I was doing. But at point times were a bit frustrated that I, I would call them out. Is there anything within your mirror that you can spot that you can go back to that was lighting the blue touch paper for this? Any particular event or time where you thought, yeah, I can see this is going to be my life's work. I'm really into this. That's a, um, that's a really, really good question. I think when I, um, I never knew that this could have been a potential career, if I'm honest. I thought it was going to be a side passion and my activism. 
I think that the real turning point was when I started, when I got into my first job in DNI. So when I was working for Maddox um, and I started to realize that there was a market as well that was interested in it. Um, Cause other than that, it would have very much been a, passion, a side passion project. And then I would be working on another job. But when I realized that I could combine the two and create a business that is commercially viable and very like has a lot of positive impact. Um, that's when I realized that actually this is what, this is the industry I want to be in forever really, or as long as I, I, I can be. Uh, the company Maddox that you mentioned there, that's the small company that you, you joined, that your friend gave you the chance. Yeah. Uh, and that was maybe the first step onto the, the sort of the, the paid escalator in this type of work, was it? Exactly. So I joined that company in 2016. Uh, we were running large scale conferences for women in tech. So we might have heard of the Women of Silicon Roundabout series. Um, and my job was to bring in the clients. So the companies, I used to work with companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and they essentially would want to hire more women. Um, so I would be that point of contact, you know, bridging that gap. Um, and it was very focused on gender diversity. You also set up MSFIX, didn't you? An online support and advice service to help women deal with their own car maintenance. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you're not doing that now, but what did you learn out of that then? Because that was really jumping into a man's world as well. So that was sexism <laughs> as well as everything else, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the story behind that was really like really quite simple and funny. So my sister and I were I was driving somewhere and my car broke down and I was stuck and I, I literally had nobody to call except like my dad and my sister had to call her husband. And we both just looked at each other and we're like, we are independent women who kind of boss it in life. But yet when it comes to trying to fix a little problem, we have to rely on the men in our lives. And it just kind of started off as like, why don't we just try get more women to know how to fix their own cars? And then that delved into a lot of research around actually like women are like, I can't remember the exact statistics, are much more likely to get ripped off by mechanics and men are not taken seriously. All of these issues, but yet we're still like half of the consumers. Um, cars aren't really built for women. You know, they're very like masculine, like women die in car accidents more because of the, the build and the structure of cars. So it just started us a more, as, as I would say, a bit of a passion project. But what we did was we surveyed women and it went viral. Like we had like in an hour, like 500 people respond to a survey because it seemed to be like a lot of like shared frustration. Um, so last year we just ran a few, we just partnered with garages and ran a few workshops um, for women to, to learn basics and about their, about their cars. Um, the things I learned from that is um, first things first, like if you've got an idea in your head, um, test it out straight away. Like it's super, it, they, they, we've got the resources available. Try reach people who you think are your target market and get the best possible data from them to know whether there's, some, there's, there's demand for it or not. So I do think there is demand for this idea. I didn't pursue it, but I would openly tell somebody who wants to pursue it to pursue it because there, there's something there. Um, secondly, the thing I learned was actually it's really, really difficult to um, live and breathe a business that you're not a hundred percent passionate about so for example what i learned was i'm not super super passionate about cars i don't really like them right so um i like the idea of empowering women which is great but the but the but then talking about cars and mechanics it just it just didn't it just didn't do it for me so i couldn't imagine spending my whole life like when you, when you when you're when you're running a business about something that is your life that's your bread and butter you breathe it i just couldn't imagine myself doing that about cars whilst I could imagine doing that about talk my race. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. So that gives us a context of 
how you got involved in this, really. So let's jump forward now to the present day and, and BYP, which to most people is just three letters. So this is your yeah. chance. What is it and what's happening? Because this is what attracted us to mm. ask if you'd come on our podcast because there's some really great stuff going on here. So tell us about it. Absolutely. So everyone must be super, super confused as to what we're talking about. BYP, what the hell is that? Um, so I'm going to try and explain it as you know, efficiently as possible. So essentially, BYP Network is the largest network of black professionals in the UK. Um, we have around 50,000 members. Um, and the reason we exist is to change the black narrative. Um, and one of the ways we do that is by um, connecting our network um, to, to, to corporations um, and improving representation of black professionals across all levels of business. Um, some compare us to a LinkedIn for black professionals. Um, so essentially, because we connect people to each other and we've got a platform. Um, and I came into the company about two years ago. And as I mentioned, my background was growing and scaling communities for women in tech, doing a lot of female empowerment stuff. Um, but what I realized was there was this huge lack of conversation um, around intersectionality, um, specifically race, um, and then in particular, black talent. Um, and as I mentioned as well, by 2014, 2015 time, um, I was reading a lot about race in the UK, ethnicity, um, and specifically found that there was a recurring um, issue and struggle that black people faced in, in the workplace consistently. And I, and I saw that a lot. Um, so something I always have to address when we're working at BYP is I'm not, I'm not black. I'm, I'm an Asian woman. Um, so I do not claim to have or, sh or have the same um, experience. Um, and I usually shy away from talking in public because it's not my story to tell. Um, but more recently, like after all the events that have unfolded this year with the Black Lives Matter pro movement, um, George Floyd, unfortunately, one thing I've really started to realize is there's a lot of room um, to talk about allyship. So if you're not from that community, how do you still like actively support without taking space, but ensuring you're opening the right doors? And BYP would not be where it is if it wasn't for the allies that we have. Um, so I always kind of say like, I mean, I've dedicated my whole life to the cause. I don't think allyship means dedicating your whole life, but even if it's like opening doors, um, creating opportunities um, and actually understanding that the problem does exist and it's our responsibility to solve it. And if we don't, we're complicit. Um, so that's kind of my, my, my journey. Like in the last kind of couple of years since I've come in, um, we've worked with over 300 companies in some capacity, whether that's Facebook, Google, We've worked with, you know, Accenture, PwC, other startups, like loads, pretty much every company in every industry. And we help them attract more black talent to their talent pipelines so diversify their talent pipelines um, and also showcase themselves as an employer of choice to the community. Um, and then we also work with like black networks in, um, within companies to help them, you know, be more engaged, provide support um, and so on. So if you're a company looking to diversify your hiring, um, let us know, like hit me up. I'll be more than happy to talk you through it. So um, I've got some quite straight questions I'd like to ask you about this, if I may. And the first one is about some of the companies on your website that you work with. You've just mentioned some. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're talking Sky, Accenture, Lloyds Bank, Netflix, yeah. mega, mega brands. Yeah. Um, how seriously are they taking this? Because we all know in the current day and age, big companies like that want to be seen to be looking like they're doing something around racism. How do you decide whether they're really playing with you or whether they're just there for the name and the fact that it looks good for them on your website? Yeah, I think that's a really, really powerful question. 
Um, and from all companies, it's like it's very different. It differs. And there have been companies that we've actually said no to working with um, in, in the past. And that happens actually happens quite frequently because we, we look at the record and we kind of see that, you know, you've publicly done this. Um, we've, there's this experience that black professionals are having specifically or black people. I don't want to name any names. It's not what I'm here to do. Um, but we've actually said, you know, unless you make a public statement directly to our network or you, there's something changes when we, we're not, we're not happy to, to work with you. Um, however, the companies we do work with, we have to understand that um, everyone has to start somewhere. Um, and yes, a lot of it is lip service, but what we do is hold companies to account. So we go and we, that's, that's why we offer the third strand, which is internal. Like we want to try and understand what your black ex employees experiencing. How can we improve their experience? Because the chances are like inclusion is really hard um, because there's not, if there's not enough of you, there's a special rule of three or 30%. In a room of two other people don't look like you, the chances are you're not going to feel included. So we have to help companies attract that talent, change that perception. Um, companies don't know where to start to look for that talent. They, the traditional routes for searching for talent has been like top universities or, you know, friends of friends, um, things like that, which means that you're only seeking the same circle of people that you've always been seeking. So you're never going to diversify that pipeline. What we've proven in a short period of time is the talent exists. It's very engaged. We just need to connect them to the right opportunities. So as long as a company is like, you know, this is something that we want to really work on. And we're happy to listen to you. And, you know, this is not, you're not a client, you're our partner. Um, we're kind of like really happy to, 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 to work with them on that. And a lot of the companies you named there are doing some really, really important work. Um, and this year has really, really shifted and, and moved the dial. Like companies aren't allowed to not, not talk about it anymore. So I get it. Like, the, you know, the, there, is, there is, it is a bit iffy in, in points, but that's why organizations like us exist. Okay. So sing the praises of one of your flagship companies and, and tell the listeners in a bit more detail how you work with them, how you get feedback from them and how mm -hmm. you achieve tangible results. Yeah. Um, so I will, I will list, I will say uh, Accenture um, is definitely one of those companies. So, yeah, so this year, 2020, we have signed and signed the most companies we've ever signed, as you can imagine, like this point of, you know, Black Lives Matter has been at peak companies have been under a lot of public pressure. Um, but Accenture have been there with us since we were barely anything two, three years ago. That's when they that's when they that's when they signed with us. And um, they have always had kind of a really active black network within the organization, constantly putting events, upskilling the black, black, like black professionals, understand the difference between BAME and don't, they don't just like focus on one as a whole group, but they like really individualize it. Um, they put, they invest, they invest into like sourcing talent from places that aren't, you know, aren't traditional um, and they listen as well. Um, and, you know, they want to engage the community. They want to help. They've, they've, they've run a ton of events with us to help upskill the community, to help, to help the community actually like get jobs at Accenture, explain how the, what the process is like. Um, and what we've seen as, 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 as a success is one, like our network loves Accenture. Everyone wants to work there. But two, we've actually seen people who wouldn't have got a job there normally have a job now. So for me, like the biggest point of like happiness is when one of our members comes and reaches out to us and says, oh, we, we're now working for Accenture, we're now working for Goldman Sachs now, and because of you guys. So we've seen that, you know, for them, they don't come to us and they're not like, if we don't hire five people, then we're going to close the partnership. No, they, they're just like, actually the work that you're doing and the narrative that you're trying to change is really important. 
how do we support you? How do we carry on supporting you? And, you know, they're open to feedback, they're open to conversation. Um, and then at the end of the day, they've actually hired from us. So that's like what we see as success. So within Accenture, do you have a main point of contact, a, a particular person, and, and then it's it, it goes from there? Or just how do you communicate? Yeah, so obviously we have our main point of contact, who's our client. Um, and we've got an account manager who, who, who works with them closely. Um, and that, that has changed over, over the few years that we've worked with them, um, the person. Um, but it's generally someone in talent, DNI, and that's the kind of person. Um, but then we, we're also quite linked to their black network, their internal black network. Um, so we have a point of contact there. Um, and then obviously when we do events with them and run, I don't know, whatever we do with them, um, we then have separate points of contact. Um, and then we're also, we've also tried to experiment with some recruitment services. So it really depends. Like we're trying to be as entrenched as possible within the entire organization, but then we tend to have like one main point of contact. So if you're white, can you join BYP and get all the benefits that everyone else is getting? So what we do have, um, we have, you can, you can sign up to BYP and sign up as an ally. So we actually have that as a, as a category of people to sign up. Um, because as we mentioned, as I mentioned, allies have been one of the biggest reasons we've grown the way we have. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the jobs board is meant for black professionals, but anyone can technically go and use it. Um, but you know, the idea is, you know, we are trying to, we're trying to get more black professionals into roles that they wouldn't. And the reason for that is by the way, there are these, 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 these crazy statistics that exist, like black and minority professionals have to apply for 80% more roles just to get the same opportunities. So there is there there are disparities. There's a you know there there is a, a large um, pay gap as well. Um, more and more companies are disclosing this. So it's not like you know people might say this is tokenism, but actually we're we're just leveling the playing field here, um, and we're just letting companies say that if they if you aren't if you're saying that the talent doesn't exist, we're helping you find that talent. And BYP is a trusted source for it because our network and our community absolutely love us. In this country at the moment, this is all very relevant, isn't it? And professional football is interesting in itself because the number of non-white players are in the 30%, yet the number of non-white coaches and backroom staff and certainly club owners and directors is minimal. Mm -hmm. So the Football Association now and various other bodies have come up with more of a quota system. It's not exactly a quota system, but it's looking for bigger representation. My, my question is, Mira, how hard is it to get better and bigger representation? Oh, that's a big question. But just to kind of start with what you mentioned in the sports side of things, and I'll also echo that with music, um, you'll see a, a huge overrepresentation in, in a good, it's not a bad thing, of sports and um, musicians that come from the black community. So that is generally what is seen as, as role models. So it's like, oh, you can be a musician, you, know, you can be an athlete. Um, and a lot of a lot of young black black kids feel like that's all they can be. Um, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but actually the probability and the percentage probability of you being successful in one of those fields is really, really low. So what what lacks is like the role models that exist within the other fields. Um, and actually we we've been working with Sony Music, Universal Group. We had a conversation with NFL as well. And a big problem that they're finding is, yes, we have a lot of sports stars who are black, a lot of musicians who are black, but at head office, at front office, we don't have that kind of representation. So the people who are actually making the money, doing the deals, where you can have a lot more people because you can only have a few sports stars and a few musicians, that's where we're lacking. 
So you need to have basically what I believe in terms of, I don't believe in like quotas. I don't really understand. I think targets. So for example, like um, if you know that your business is operating in London and in London, 10% of the population is black across all levels, that is a target you should have to get rep- to, to get fair representation. It shouldn't be so hard. So you need to then look at your data. People don't have the data. Make that a priority, like what the actual numbers. So companies like Goldman Sachs have publicly gone out. And this surprised me, but now when we start working with them, I know that they have very, very high and ambitious targets specifically for different races. They say we want, you know, say for example, 10% black representation across all levels of our business by 2025. Let's say that's not, don't quote me on that, but that's that's the kind of granularity you, you need. So then you know where to go. Otherwise, it's just a nice to have. You're just ticking boxes. So once you have that target in place, you can say, all right, how do we go about doing that? Let's speak to the experts. Where do where do black where does black talent congregate? Now the future is like if your if your workplace is not diverse, you know, you're probably going to be outcompeted. Like we know the business benefits. I don't want to go into that. The McKinsey report highlights it, you know, in terms of ethnic diversity specifically, not just gender diversity, you know, the benefits in terms of profitability. So if you're not thinking or seeking that talent right now, you're probably not going to be competitive in the next five to 10 years. So it's more, it's, it's as big as a business case as it is doing a good thing. You need to be very, very um, deliberate about where you're searching for that talent and then put targets. Where do you see BYP being in five years? Um, so first of all, in 10 years, I feel like BYP shouldn't have to exist. That's the dream. Like we've solved all the problems. We don't need to exist. That's ideally that a platform like us doesn't need to be around. Um, in five years time, However, I see us being um, having millions of people using BYP Network, Black professionals being connected, um, moving across multiple geographies, countries, um, you know, really having like a strong sense of like understanding where companies are struggling um, in terms of hiring, attracting, retaining talent um, and being able to like present a real viable solution. Um, and then obviously, like, you know, we're seeing like actually like the rec- representation in the workplace is, is genuinely shifting. Like we're seeing large companies, small companies, startups. Um, we're seeing that, that actual shift when it comes to like a senior leadership level that you're seeing more people of color at the, at the top of organizations. So that's where hopefully in five years time, we're really making that impact. Uh, as you know, we're all about leadership on this podcast series mm-hmm. and leadership comes in all different shapes and sizes. Um, And you just exude leadership, Mira. And it's not the leadership of running a sales team. It's a much wider leadership. How would you describe your leadership, your leadership role and the leadership attributes that you know that you bring to this role? I'm learning about leadership, about myself every single day, if I'm completely honest with you. Like it's only recently where... You know, we've really started growing as a company and I'm now managing three people under me and we're expanding or hiring three or four more people in the next kind of few months. Um, So I'm learning a lot about about leadership. Um, And the thing I've learned, I think the most and the thing that I absolutely love about it is you've got to be like empathy and consistency are the two things that um, I think a good leader needs. Um, They're very like I know they come with very like feminine qualities. And I think that's something that we're missing in, in business. Um, so really like really understanding and knowing who you're working with, who you're leading, why they are there, um, what their ambition and what their goal is. And like treating every single person as an individual and then motivating them accordingly. 
so for example I have like someone in my team who likes to talk about her personal life and likes to share and I've got someone else on my team who's a complete opposite and you know reacting to that in completely different ways and knowing that it's okay and being empathetic as to, to the reasons why um, and then you know secondly the consistency so it's quite easy to have this big vision and talking big visions I know we all do I do that me, me and my co-founder we do that but ultimately like if we have to have like consistent targets consistent KPIs consistent meetings every day consistent points of contact so they know exactly people know exactly what to expect because you can have the great big vision and people get really excited and they're like oh we want to we want to execute we want to do this but then you've got to really like bring it hone it back down into like the basic stuff. So you've got to do, you know, you've got to do this much activity every day. You've got to set, do these many calls a day. You've got to book these many meetings a day. And at the end of the week, I'm going to check that and then actually see if you're performing. So I think consistency and empathy would say are the two main things I've learned, but I'm still on this journey. Like I have, you know, I think, I think you can teach me a thing or two as well. Like I'm still, I'm still getting, I'm still getting to grips with it. Well, you say that it's important to know within leadership why you're there. And I don't think there's any doubt for anyone listening that you certainly know why you're there. Mira Raikundalia, thank you so much for your time. You are one truly inspirational lady. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoy speaking to you, Peter. Have a, have a lovely day. If you've enjoyed this episode and are interested in seeing and listening to more of our content, please do follow us on our LinkedIn profile where you'll find more industry-related material and articles. We're now taking a Christmas break and we'll be back on January the 7th. We look forward to you joining us then.